Hello and welcome to um, another episode of Paint and Scale with myself, Ben Skipper. And this evening, I'm going to say this evening because that's when I'm recording it. And I'd like to think that our listeners are listening to it in the evening with a fine cup of tea or perhaps something stronger. I don't know. A coffee with one sugar. The world's our oyster. You can tell by my tone straight away where this is going to be going and possibly hazard a guess at the... Um, and the guests I have with me this evening. So, without further ado, um, may I introduce OC French Debt? Hello, Gary. Hello. Uh, yeah, we are here. The French are here. <laughs> the French. And, <laughs> and, and, and Gary is enjoying the balmy tropics of the Seven Valleys as we speak, wondering why on earth he's even volunteered to do this when he could be outside enjoying himself. And as always, um, because there's three of us, I'm joined by OC Wargaming, Dr. Philip Blood. Dr. Good Blood. evening, good evening. Good, good evening, Dr. Blood. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for coming to the the, uh, the the anti-room. We should call this the anti-room, really, because it's not the Adjutant's Lounge, because we can't be posh on it. Well, we can be posh, but it's, it's more like-hearted. Now, on the last episode, we sort of veered off a little. Uh, we ended up... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, well, you know, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We we got into some very strange realms that partially to do with wargaming, partially to do with some strange names for for exercises that people in the know know. I won't repeat it here because we we had our chuckle before I press record, and I think that's the best thing getting out of the way. But now we're going to go back. Yeah, what? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> You know, I, I feel like, you know, that somebody who's been promoted just slightly above their abilities and he's faced with a couple of old sweats and he's trying to get them to do something and it's just going to go horribly wrong. Just running circles around me, aren't you, really? <laughs> so, chaps, so we're talking about wargaming. Um, thank you, firstly, for coming back on to talk about this because we're going to expand the theme. Um, and we've over sort of looked at it a couple of times. Um and what I'm going to do, I'm going to wind up the proverbial um, monkey with the symbols um, and drop them on the carpet and see what happens. Chaps. I understood, okay, and, and this is maybe really coming out of left field. What we were going to look at was where war, A, where wargaming led us historically uh, from us ordinary little kid chats, young chats, back in the very late 60s, very early 70s, where our world was at the most exotic American Civil War, yep. mainly World War Two, because of TV, because of books, because of comics. But wargaming opened up another world to us of campaigns, histories, and people um, that we couldn't have really got at unless... I mean, we were talking about academics earlier... Yeah, why would this kid from East London really all of a sudden start looking at the army of Flanders in the 17th century? Why would you be looking at woodland Indians in the Seven Years' War? And it was wargaming that did it for me. And uh, oh, hey. there we go. A bit, uh, there's a book on Antietam. And all of a sudden, the American Civil War was more than just the Battle of Gettysburg. And you're absolutely right because it opens up. Um, as, as, as Phil is showing off his, I'm going to let Phil take 1962 over. 1962 copy of the Illustrated History of the Battlefield Journal of the Battle of Antietam. Oh, brilliant! The Battle of Antietam, yeah. So that was just to reinforce what Gary was saying. <clears throat> It was. I mean, I, I can remember uh, as a kid, we had the Britain's uh, Swapits that were those, those great 54 mil uh, American Civil War figures. And people said to me once, I said, oh, why are you interested in the UK in the American Civil War? First off, we got a lot of Hollywood. We got a lot of novels and comics and stuff like that. And of course, for our generation, it was coming up for the centenary of the American Civil War. So, we, you know, which we, we tended to get it. Airfix did their figures. Uh, Britons did their figures as well. There was those great uh, series of bubblegum cards by ABC on the American okay. Civil War as well. And you got the Confederate money that spawned the uh, uh, 
uh, Soscan, it was the reenacting thing that I did as a, an American Civil War reenactor as well in the 90s. Um, and of course, you got into wargaming, and, and it was one of the, the main, it would be one of the main um, genres that, 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 of figures that were being produced. Most of the companies, what did they do? Everyone produced Napoleonics, some ancients, an American Civil War. That, that, that to me, I, I think it tended to be their mainstay. But then, of course, on that, you had people like we were talking earlier, uh, people that worked at Sanders that opened up the Tradition magazine, that pushed what they were interested in, would then push through those companies. And we started going down lots and lots of rabbit holes from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. You know, forget fantasy, that, that came out of left field. But the Finnish War in the 1930s, Spanish Civil War, um, uh, Gary, the you, South American Wars. Have you just seen what Gary has? You might, you might, your screen might just have frozen, but look at this. Oh, yes. Look, Weren't um, they just lovely? Mint and box, as we say in the trade, MIB. And now, what, what, what Phil's showing us is. Uh, miniature productions about outlaw arms, and then there's there's three pistols there, sort of atypical <coughs> late nineteenth century firearms. Uh, we got well, we got a Colt. They're all American. It was a private uh, a pirate gun. With pirate the, gun. With the usual thing, you have the uh, Colt revolver, which was always linked to the American Civil War style, and then you had the the two girl to the what's it cadet thing which was shuffled under your arm when you played cards and then if you were losing you shot the bloke you fight you were losing (laughs) 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 well what's wrong with putting three pool cues and pill balls in a sock and whirling around your head and giving you some (laughs) yeah the mansfield equalizer it has no equal really (laughs) and that's a little present from my grandfather yeah, from the 60s. So as Gary's talking about that Confederate money, I not only remember the Confederate money, but I got this little gun set. And there was so much of this, what I would call American culture, surrounding the battlefields um, that was coming into Britain. It had no pattern, did it? You, you, you'd yeah. have chewing gum, you'd have magazines, you'd have guns, there was Lone Star guns. There was such a, a confusion. <clears throat> your, your, your television was saying one thing and you were doing something else. It was quite... Do you remember we had Robin Hood, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah, it was like Robin, tie me and bind me, wasn't it? Which is always quite fun. We made Marion. <laughs> I'll always remember that line. Men in tights. I'll always remember that line. Um, yeah, as you say, we had Robin Hood with Lawn Green. Um and, and it, it, you couldn't get away from it. And we even had, oh, that we, do you remember the series um, Richard the Lionheart? There was Richard the Lionheart, which was sort of dubious crusades. And you also had William Tell. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. And then there was that Second World War American one, wasn't there? Was it? Garrison's Gorillas. Yeah. And the Rat Patrol. Rat Patrol, I remember. Rat Patrol, yes. Garrison's Gorillas was done on the back of uh, things like the Dirty Dozen. It was a group of commandos going behind German lines, blowing things up and smuggling gold out. And I can remember the uh, the TV thing when they, they did Rat Patrol. Uh, there was a big hoo-ha. It must have been in the Daily Mail. It's true. It was in the, if, it's, if it's in the Daily Mail, it's true. Um, there was a thing in the mail about, oh, my God, uh, they've not mentioned the British in it. It was just a bunch of American commandos going around the desert shooting up Germans in trucks with the usual uh bit like Sven Hassel in Kharki. Uh, <laughs> and as kids it was great. You know, who cares they weren't the British in it? They weren't sexy. And then Aurora did a model kit. Now what we didn't get, of course, that the Yanks had was there was a TV series twelve o'clock high. <laughs> and there was also a series based on a, a fighter squadron. Oh, is it uh, I can't remember Black the name now. Squadron. Black, yeah, exactly. Um, which we never got in the UK, but was big in, Euro- in Europe. It's quite big in France. Yeah. 
So everyone had all you couldn't get away from it. So naturally you went into war gaming. And and I think what was great was to me, I mean, I, I was having this with Nettie earlier. She said, What do you know about war gaming? And I said, Well, lots of things happened before I met you, dear. Was <laughs> yeah. Uh, was that it was that next step up. You were still interested in toy soldiers, model soldiers. And it was a bit more sophisticated to say, I'm interested in wargaming. Because for a start, Callan was a wargamer when you were at school. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and you could go, oh, well, yeah, oh, wargaming. Uh, but, you know, <coughs> still a nerd, though, because people still laughed at you. Um, but I remember the TV series with Callan being a wargamer. So all of a sudden you thought, well, I'm not that much of a, of a nerd, really, or a geek. Because they're doing it on TV. And, you know, you then, it almost become acceptable in some ways with Wargaming, I think, as well. And, that's what, and it was just great being on the periphery, looking in. Because as a reenactor, we got asked to a lot of shows to be the set dressing, basically, on various bits and pieces. So it was quite interesting looking at a lot of these games and looking at another club. Because I've always said with, with clubs, no matter what club you go to, it always splits up into different fra factions, whether it's metal detecting, wargaming, whatever you do. And wargaming was exactly the same. You know, you, there were the gods of wargaming that we, we got to meet back in the 60s and the 70s. But you listen to some of the discussions. Uh, the, the funniest one I'll always remember was we were at the National Army Museum. Um and I think we were dressed as American War of Independence, uh, American Civil War, I was doing at the time. And we were there with, a, with our gun. We were Minnesotan artillery, Minnesota regiment. And we were there sort of just wandering around, you know, got paid to go, you know, got expenses to go for the day. And there was a big, the major battle they were fighting as a demonstration was the Russian-Finnish War of 1939. Okay. And one of the guys there who was overseeing it was one of these guys that it wasn't Stadney, it wasn't Charles Grant, it was one of the sort of guys that come to Furore in the 80s. And I thought, oh gosh, that's the guy who writes those books. And he, he, he's on, um, I think he might have been involved with a TV thing as well, certainly did a lot of the magazine stuff. And he's overseeing this game and they've asked him to come and sort of like look at it. Amazing game, fought across a lake with those little uh, Russian scooters with propellers on their back and skis that go across the ice right so a load of these have charged across the ice in this game and a load of Finnish anti-tank guns have opened up on the other side of the lake and just blasted it was like the charge of the light brigade across the lake with these snow speeders and the guy rolled a dice and he decimated the whole lot of them and everyone oh well done you know almost the end of the game and the guy who was the sort of god of wargaming went, hmm, I think you've missed a point here. And there was a big hush across the table. And they said, what? He said, well, he said, I'm, you know, he said, I think what's happened in reality is you fired when you fired was far too late and you've hit the vehicles, but they've all carried on going and they've all run into your guns and knocked all your guns out. <laughs> and there's all these people pondering like, Mmm, jazz. And you're looking around and going, yeah, yeah you're seriously, yeah, someone's got to say something here. Yeah? And they're all, hmm, yes. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, we, the war gamers are weird still. Um, I found that really funny. I found it absolutely hilarious, I must admit. The way everyone was sort of hanging on his every word. Um, that's one of the downsides of the wargaming thing. But certainly in the, in the 70s, it opened my mind to all of these wars. You know, the wars I was interested in, Napoleonic's a bit. But all of a sudden, there's a whole, you know, you've got the, the Polish Wings Hussars of the 16th and 17th century, yeah. Army of Flanders. You've got the, the Anglo-Irish wars in the Elizabethan period. People were wargaming. Um, it was absolutely tremendous what, it opened up and it broadened your education. No end. Absolutely no end at all. Yeah. If you wanted a war game, it, there were figures for it. Definitely. It's interesting, isn't it? <clears throat> you sort of, you know, the, the comments about sort of war gaming and 
And you know this card saying, "Well, they would have created on onwards." That's actually quite clever, isn't it? In a way, because he he's what he's doing is getting people to think about the actual. You know, he doesn't just end with the roll of the dice. I mean, I know it, it, it's a tenuous thing in terms of the game and in terms of context. Yeah, mate, you've lost the die. You know, you, you, the die's yeah. fallen against you. Your, your snowmobiles are now scattered to the winds, burning on Lake Baikal quite happily or wherever the... Uh, my, my appreciation of the Kola Peninsula and its geographical features are, as you can tell, absolutely appalling. But, yeah, I suppose one or two might have careered onwards, driven forward by a... Um, uh, an individual with a lustful bloodlust for vengeance. And a rush of vodka. And a rush of vodka, <clears throat> or passed with the fact that his foot's rammed onto the accelerator and he's giving it some ER into a series of, of 75 millimetres. I, I don't know. Could have happened. But yeah, it makes you think. Because that actually occasionally does happen in real life. Well, it may well have happened. I don't know. Oh, mm. there's at least one we know. Funny enough, there's a guy buried at um, Ranville Cemetery, British officer, who knocked a tank out. German tank and the tank carried on and, and, and killed him. Oh, God. Shouldn't chuckle, but it's. I remember yeah. standing by his grave and someone going, Oh, this is so and so, so and so. You know, don't just do the parrot, the guy with the dog, Glenn. Don't just do the 16 year old. Come over and look at this. And wow. uh, there was a British officer who was uh, who was killed by a runaway German vehicle. Said, okay. Yeah. So, um, but I mean, on the wargaming track, Phil, I don't know, but. All of a sudden, the likes of what you got into with military, the military modeling magazine, wargaming magazine as well, was that you went from just being the stuff that you saw American Civil War with Airfix and whatever. All of a sudden, oh, hang on a minute, uh, we've got the French fighting in Mexico as well. Yeah, I mean that the, the thing about the magazines, which um, the actual toys and everything couldn't couldn't fill was the fact that you every month you'd pick up one of these magazines and you'd obviously want to read all of it. So you were covering such a diverse group. You were taking in all these different wars. So you could be one minute looking at Napoleonics or Second World War or, as you say, Mexican wars. And it was that variety that was making the, the sport, if you like, or wargaming as a sport or a pastime, that was turning it into a very dynamic um well pastime you could because you, you you could range across so many things and you would learn so many different ways of fighting with the romans with the the french and when you actually went out to a war game you could actually engage in it if you've done the little bit of reading yeah and you could understand what was going on i mean that was the thing that was that, that fascinated me the very first time i went to a, a war game conference I could actually understand what on earth was going on. And I thought, you know, that was really exciting. I wasn't participating. I was just sat there watching and taking it in and understanding what was going on. And that's like, that's a little leap. You, you don't you don't think of it at the time because you're only just starting your, your hobby. But you've actually made a, a major step. I mean, some people, you know, they do their ethics and they go from making an aeroplane to a Tamiya and then start using uh, spray guns and all of this to build their kits, and, and then they start putting etchings in, and they're going through various stages. And ben had uh, a lad on, I think, last week, who was talking about the way he was working with his resin model-making machine, and he, was, he would trial and error. But once he'd got through the process of trial and error, he was far ahead of where he was when he started. And that was the same with Wargaming. And we were being educated. This is the thing that I always liked about Wargaming. You're being educated while you're enjoying yourself. Mm. Yeah? And, and that's vital, isn't it? It's one of the key tenants, if you look at Benson, you know, not off-subject, but, but you'll see the link in a minute, uh, Dr. Benjamin Spock. You know, when he, he was looking at early life um, socialisation, you know, we, we learn through playing. We, we, we do, you know, whether it's through playing on the rugby field or, or something like wargaming, you do learn. And, and I think, and you're, you're 100% right, Phil, when, when you're doing something that's enjoyable and is not so much um, having to do, you do take in more, I think. But there's another part of wargaming which um, I think some of us, um, were lucky enough to get, and that was to very quick, for very early on, 
um, to push away the irrational or the downright silly. You, you know, there was this idea that you could, you know, all run out the trench and invade the enemy and it was a roll of a six and all the rest of it. And everybody knew, you know, 25%, 20%. Those kind of figures suddenly came flying around and, and you were constantly hitting them. 20% immediately in the first few feet of coming out the trench and then another 10% as the, and, until eventually you're down to one man. And you knew those kind of ratios because everybody was talking about those ratios. And it was funny how those ratios kept turning up every time, you know, somebody would fire a whole load of cannonade at a, a French uh, line coming up the side of a hill and the first row's gone and then digging into the second row and then the third row's getting hammered and shelled and then the fourth row. And all of those processes are coming into your mind. And what you're doing is you're actually pushing out the superfluous. You weren't really very interested so much in you know, the ones being brave or the one or the outliers on the side, you're actually concentrated right hard on the very centre of the event. And that I found fascinating, because if you concentrated like that long enough, you've got to understand your battles better. And then when you did your research, you didn't do peripheral stuff. <coughs> you didn't do research of peripheral work. You did research of main core. You would look at the other stuff later. So when you came to looking at major books by Featherstone, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to be reading his, you know, how he's going to paint ladies or whatever. You were actually looking at how he's going to deal with this war game and you concentrated on it. And they were written in such a way that you got the maximum effort from your input. So if you put a lot of effort in, you put a lot of effort back. Yeah. And it worked that way. The feedback coming back to you as you put effort into wargaming was immediately coming back. And it always struck me, the more I put in, the more was coming out of it. And it remained that way. Can I ask you both a question, actually? Because it's quite interesting where this is actually now going. In, in the terms of, of your own personal experience, your lived experience, did you find that uh, as you played a particular style or you, you did a particular battle, were you? Or we did you automatically want? Not automatically, but did you, did you feel that urge to to look further and, and in that particular period? You no, know, whether it be the American Civil War, whether it be the Seven Years' War, or did, was that idea introduced to you? Well, at the Battle of Antietam, there's a period where there's a huge blood toll taking off. You know, where there's literally attrition. And either side are mowing each other down and bodies are lying on top of each other and all the rest of it. And the more I read into that, the more I wanted to compare it with what was going on in the First World War. And that led me to looking at, you know, attritional warfare in the First World War. I've actually never, um, I just want to say this caveat, I've never done First World War wargaming. I, it, it always seems to be... Uh, a no-win situation. I mean, people yeah. tell me otherwise. But I've never done what, you know, First World War gave. It's never really kind yeah. of appealed to me. Whereas uh, a S American Civil War battlefield where you've got attrition taking place, there's attrition taking place at that point. But at another point, you've got a manoeuvre taking place. And there is open field operations and there's cavalry booming round and artillery shifting and the battlefield doesn't stay static. It's, there's an awful lot of movement going on, even in those three days or four days of Antietam. So, yes, to me, it led me to do a lot more reading. So eventually I read, um, I forgot his name, Stephen ugh, wrote the book on Antietam, um, which was very famous at, at its time. There's been more since, obviously, but uh, yeah, a lot more reading, a lot more reading. Yeah, I mean, I'll say exactly the same that Phil said, that I just through seeing an article or a particular battle at a war games club, uh, going along to something like Loughton Strike Force, which is a local club to me, uh, in the 80s, was that it would then open up a period that you, and it could be very expensive as well, I'll give it that, yeah. where it books, figures, and et cetera. And you just go down and you go, hang on a minute, that's really interesting. Um, let's look at the Army of Flanders. Let's look at the religious wars in France. And then all of a sudden, oh, uh, there we go. And then all of a sudden, you'll find 
a whole series of battles pretty local to where you are that you'd go down. So that would open up a new vista. You're actually going to go and start visiting sites that you came as well. You're going to get into another genre of history and a period that will knock you onto something else that's completely out of the comfort zone or the zone that you were in at school. What I mean, we were pretty good at our school. I'll give it to you. When people go like, history wasn't teach, uh, taught at school and stuff like this. And I'll run off what we were taught at our school from 1968 until I left in 1974. And they'll go, oh, what grammar school did you go to? And I'll say, actually, I went to the same school that the Cray Twins went to. A different <laughs> time, a different time by about a few years. Um, Stay late, Molly, Wormwood Scrubs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> luckily, I never followed them that far. Um, <laughs> ain't going down that road. But all of a sudden, even with what I did at school, and, and it, which was pretty Catholic, you know, I thought we had an excellent history teacher and everything else. All of a sudden, Wargaming blew your world open when it comes to huge events that were going on in the world that all of a sudden you find out that while we're banging on in English history, uh, let's say during the sort of 1860s, and we talk, they might talk about the mutiny or that touch on the British Empire, German unification, Italian unification. Over in China, there's a war going on that won't pass a body count until World War II. And that was war gaming that got me into that one. You know, um, Gordon and his ever victorious army fighting, and, and that was completely through war gaming that opened up that aspect of military history that not only wouldn't I have looked at, wouldn't have even been on my radar uh, until it was down to war. As, as you're both talking, it's very clear that I think you were sort of, you were very, you know, your, your generation were exceptionally lucky in having the opportunities where war gaming was quite prolific. Uh, and it seems very open. And I, I think historical war gaming, you know, we have talked about this before, but I think so, you know, the, the computer age, may have taken over some of that you know you, you see some of these simulators and i've seen a few of them about you know in the early days so the early 90s do you feel that you you were you were almost spoiled by what was available well first of all it was a very different world because you would have bbc television if, if you go back to the 60s there was one channel on bbc and there's one channel on itv and both of them shut down at about like, before 12 o'clock yep. uh, they were all in black and white, and you were very lucky if there was decent programs on. I mean, for me, it wasn't just the, the children's programs like Robin, Robin Hood. There was all our yesterdays with Brian English. But if you looked at our lifestyle then, there weren't counter... Well, okay, there were, there were other things you could do, like playing football. Uh, you could run around pretending to play soldiers. You could... Um, be into fishing, the chess. The, there were there were lots of competing pastimes and interests, but nothing was quite so complete as wargaming. Because in all of this, you had to learn the paint to paint your soldiers. You had to learn how to build model tanks. You had to learn how to put armies together. You had to put the cavalry in a certain place. You had to make sure that you had the right amount of troops to be able to fulfil the requirements. So. Yeah, there was a lot of activity going on and television wasn't interrupting me. School was interrupting me. Damn right, school interrupted me because I wanted to do what I wanted to do. Um, that, that was the way the world then. Yeah. Everything's competing. Yeah, I think Phil's so right in it, which we tend to forget. Uh, and my kids look at me now, and my, my eldest is 40 now. And she'll look at me, and even if you talk about silly things like, yeah, they used to smoke in the cinema when we went to the pictures, yeah, and they'll go, okay, he's off again. But but when you look at that aspect of, as Phil quite rightly says, I remember BBC Two coming in as well. And you could start off with your war gaming and literally was two packets of Airfix soldiers, a couple of Airfix tanks on the kitchen table, a little bit more sophisticated than you'd think. Hang on, I can do this, set this formation up. I've seen that movie, uh, be it the Arnhem one, theirs is the glory, that sort of thing. And I can do that 
Then I buy a magazine. I find out there's a club. You can go along to that and you're on the periphery of that as a young lad. You know, you might sort of get to know a couple of the older kids are there. You then progress up onto that next level. So all the time, football, there was a cutoff point. Yeah, you know, I, I, I was not a bad goalkeeper. So it gets to the point, you're playing at, at school, you're playing in the street, you play for a little local team, but you were never going to go to Wembley. It finished. It was cut off. With Wargaming, you could go on and on and on quite easily, a fair way, non-stop to all different levels. And that's what I loved about Wargaming as well. You know, even doing one-in-one Wargaming as a reenactor and the people that then you met as well, like Brigadier Peter Young, like Nicholson and all these mates and the Chandlers in this world and poop, who always amazed me. If you went through World War II and stuff like that, you're still wargaming and writing books on wargaming. That was another avenue that, that, that wargaming opened up to me. Yeah, you know, I remember someone saying, oh, you know, playing with war toys, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, you don't know what war's really about. If you did, you wouldn't be playing with toy soldiers. And you think, hang on a minute, the guys writing these books all went through World War II. Yeah, and, and again, I think people tend to forget that because what what you know the, the, these writers were doing, they were they were sharing their experiences from the line, and it was and again, it's a passage of information and it's a learning journey in itself. That isn't it? That act, conscious act, to say, well, I'm going to write about this because there is something to be learned from this. Not perhaps. I think there's also another factor that comes into this because once you got to the seventies. You suddenly started to see uh, coming in from America were board war games, and yeah. they came from Avalon Hill and um, SPI. SPI, that's right, simulations, and they they changed the way that you could think about war gaming. Uh, okay, there's an element of esoteric and philosophical taking place when you're in a war game because you're in those board games because you're having to think more about what's going on. You're not attracted to the detail because they're just little cardboard counters on a kind of a strange map. Um, and sometimes, the, and because the map's flat, it's all 2D. You're not really into that war gaming 3D environment. So you're thinking differently. And you, ha- you actually take some very interesting um, processes to try and play your war game as effectively as possible. And that changed. Because if you ever saw, if you ever saw how uh, Vaktam Rai looked, there was about 1,500 pieces of little cards. Yeah. There were about two massive great big map boards which were a form of card. And when you laid it all out, it was as big as an ordinary sitting room. And if you actually tried to put the units on the boards, we we tried it. We actually tried it one night at home, a friend of mine, of, of mine and myself. We tried to put the cards up. We literally spent all Friday night, all of the next day. And by the time we'd done it, which was around about five o'clock when his wife came in with the next round of butties for us. We just said, okay, let's roll it up and let's, let's play Panzerkrieg or whatever it was, because it was so exhausting. It had killed the interest. Yeah. Yeah. Funny you saying that a friend of mine had that him and his brothers and they lived uh, in Hyams park, huge, big house. Absolutely massive. They were a Catholic family, about 14 kids at home, this sort of thing. So they had this huge, big open area at the top. And uh, he said, look, I've got this watch and rhyme, uh, Avalon Hill. I want to play it. Come over Saturday morning and we'll set it up and play it on Sunday. I said, how big is this thing? Over 1,500 counters. So we, I got there sort of 9 o'clock Saturday morning. We had this huge blitz of him and his brothers putting all the, cave, all the table out, put all on the floor, managed to get most of the figures down literally six hours later. And he said, come on, let's go down the pub. So we went down the pub for two hours and come back, and his mum said, I tidied your game away for you. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was literally, he said, oh, come on, let's go and play Panzer Blitz. That was the Panzerblitz, yeah. And um, but I must admit, Phil, you're right because I was about seventeen 
And one of the people that were importing SBI games into the UK were up in North London. And it was it was quite sort of adult to go into their lovely big bookshop up in North London. And they had all the games there. And I was looking around and I said, he said, this is the latest one to come in that was to do with the Sinai War. So this would have been about 1975, 76. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it literally was you know, pretty fresh in the news. So I said, OK, I'll take that one. Yeah, it was the uh, Seven Days War one. And I took it home and, and I got to play it with a, uh, with a relative, ex-British Army. Uh, he was a staff sergeant instructor at Hive. And we spent one evening playing it. And it was absolutely brilliant. It made you feel really adult. And the other thing that was really good, the map wasn't that big, probably, you know, three foot square, something like that. To see all the figures on, to see all this armour piling up in a road with these huge logistic trails and nightmares really started to bring it home to you what war was about from that upper echelon level of looking down. When you could do your war gaming that introduced you, as we, you said earlier, to the likes of Antietam and you get these volleys being exchanged with, uh, um, you know, with mini rounds and free band enfields that no one had really come up to before and was devastating effects amongst artillery crews and infantry uh, as well. You're now looking, and I, I was looking at this map with the whole of the middle, or not the Middle East, but Israel, Palestine laid out in front of me with the, all the armies there and the Arab, you know, the Jordanians coming in from one end, the Egyptians from the other, uh, and the Israelis going absolutely wild and then we're pushing across the desert. And that pro and it was just a huge learning curve that you came away with at the end and thought you'd actually learnt something from your hobby. Which I think that the board gaming one, to me, and I hate to say it, took it to another level of sophistication in many ways. I don't know how you feel, Phil, from the figures. It almost took it, I'm not going to say to an adult level, but to a different level with the board gaming. Certainly with some of their most, their more sophisticated. I don't know how you feel about that. Well, yes, because we got into uh, squad leader. And with squad leader, you're doing these individual squads, platoon, yeah. all smaller than pl platoon level. Um, we actually did it side by side. We had figures on the one side and we had the board on the other. And we saw and we tried to play the two together. It does. Squad leader doesn't work for figures. People tell me they can make it happen, but it, it never really worked for figures. What actually happened that I can basically remember was in response to the, the war game sophistication, uh, the, the board game sophistication, the war gamers, the figure war gamers, went down another route. And one, one of them was to produce Rebel. I don't know if you remember it. It was like a box, two-inch thick box, of war game rules and dice and sorts of things. And then the, the Second World War was Command Decision, I think it was called. Yeah, it was, yeah. Great big thick box of, of war game rules. And the problem was they became so esoteric, you were just lost in minutiae of detail, which it just killed. Featherston wanted you to flow and engage. These war games took you into being almost war game bureaucrats and you were going through all this process of trying to understand all this war game material and you think well okay that what well, one of the booklets i think that i was dealing with was a thousand pages when you think we've gone back to war gaming uh, i mentioned it last week um ian godwin's 18th century rules you know back to 30 pages so we've actually we've actually gone through a process where mm. it sophistication has come in we've tried to respond and then we've gone back to where we were and i think that that's the great thing about war games it's forever for learners it's not it and progressors it's not really something that sits back i think another another issue that has changed war gaming vastly has been computerization absolutely and you saw i mean that immediately comes to mind the games like sudden strike which is you know um tanks on a on a board and there's burning horizons and again german american british tanks fighting battles and 
making bang sounds and all the rest of it. There's also, of course, um, the fantasy kind of games with COD, you know, Call of Duty, um, Battlefield 5 and these things. I've tried them, but you can't, I don't think, those games appeal to a certain age of generation who just want to have simplicity and, and have lots of fun and shooting up and all the rest of it. But actually to get back to war games and sit there for four hours contemplating a battle, I still think has a huge appeal to an awful lot of people. Um, it, I think you're right, and it does. And one of the games that I, I we first got a computer back in the 90s, I was working for Honeywell, an American company, and uh, got a computer, and I said to my missus, okay, right, I'll get one of these war games. And the one I managed to get to play that I was literally addicted to was Red Storm Rising, yeah. which is nuclear submarine World War Three. That a game like that is perfectly su suited for a computer because you're looking at computer screens on a computer. Yeah. And I remember showing it to the uh, the game to one of the uh, the lads at Honeywell. The reason I'm mentioning this, who'd served on American submarines in the 70s and the 80s, then got on to work for Honeywell. Uh, and we br I brought it into work, put it onto the computers, fired it up. And he said, you know, Gary, he said, 10 years ago, those screens, we, we if anyone, a uh, contractor or anyone else walked onto the submarine, those screens would be covered up for the way it's shown on that game. He said, I can't believe how good and how accurate that game is. Uh, and I, I really do think that computer games, computer gaming, for the something that like a Submarine Warfare, Red Storm Rising, was perfect. But to me, you still can't beat a really nice six or eight foot square table with some great figures sitting down for an evening's wargaming. That's that's, that's a, a fantastic, entertaining evening that yeah. you can't get on a computer. Yeah, I fairly agree with you on that. I haven't seen a computer game to, for my mind, I haven't seen a computer game compete with the experience of model figures on the on, on a table. Yeah. Okay, you're using rulers and dice and all the rest of it. But, you know, some of those soldiers I've painted myself, well, all of the soldiers I've painted myself, and and it's everything from, from the bare base model to the terrain, to the troops, to the moment they go into combat, there's a process there and it's really rather fulfilling. And, and as you say, it, it it's oh, it, it's incredibly relaxing if you're doing it properly. Mm. Yeah, and the other aspect, of course, is that you will be dealing with somebody else. You know, you'll have that social interaction. So you, you'll actually, you know, um, be sparing spending that time with somebody in the same physical space. I know in these sort of COVID times, it's very hard, but they're not going to last forever. And then, and of course, you've still got family members. Mm. But I mean, good point, point bad point. You know, you, uh, I don't know how you felt. You could go to some clubs, and there could be some uh, some very heated discussions that went on. Yeah, there was always somebody. Yeah, there could always be somebody who you know who had an issue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but overall, it was world gaming, and, and I think you're great because I, I said I did a thing couple of years ago when covid first started i collected and i was talking to uh, ben earlier i started collecting some of the old school model figures that came out in the 50s 60s and 70s up to the 80s by some of the standard great stadden people like that and i was getting stuff that buying stuff that you know competition winning stuff that had been in military modeling and i photographed it put it on twitter made a comment and I said, this is from the golden age, to me, of military modelling. And I got inundated with all these people going, no, you're wrong. The golden age is now of military modelling and et cetera. And I, I, I said, I think you might be missing something. I don't want to cause an argument. But when you consider what we went through with military modelling in the 60s and the 70s, alongside wargaming, you can't separate the two in many ways because they are combined. It was a golden age of clubs, going out to different clubs, competitions, 
exhibitions, you know, the, the, the model engineering exhibition, uh, the big war games fairs as well, into the war game shops on a weekend. Your local war game shop might have a, a club with it as well, sitting upstairs. Um, it'll be very difficult to repeat that again. And I think that's been lost. And I can't see that coming back. It's a bit like the dinosaurs. It's gone. That's sad in a way, but it's also a challenge, isn't it? Because I, I would like to think that post-COVID, you know, during the period where where we've had this lockdown, I mean, you know, people like ourselves, we've worked because nature of the beast. But then there, I think there are people who have reevaluated what's important to them. And in fact, we we all have to an extent, haven't we? We've all, you know, this is important to me, this isn't. Well, um, you know, the, the one thread is perhaps so the social interaction. Um. And it would be interesting to see what does happen, you know, especially with the resurgence of interest in military history and whether or not there is a resurgence of interest in, I don't want to use the word playing, although it is the correct term, but playing out the various scenarios, whether they be from, um, you know, the the, the Egyptian um, wars of, of 2000 BC right up to, more contemporary um, conflicts. I, see... I, I think there's, I think the problem with the pandemic for me um, has been not so much it's affected my writing, but it's it's affected my ability to move onto ground to try and understand something. I'm very lucky in that um, one of the next works I'm doing is about Arkham, and Arkham was itself a battlefield. And with this battlefield, I can walk the lines and I know where the American troops arrived and I, I know where the last battle was and I know where the command centre was and I know where the civilian... I just I spent a lot of time on it. But I can't walk around, say, Normandy. And I can't get back to England to do some archival research. And I can't just jump on a train and go to Poland and have a look, have a look at the battlefields, which are for my um, book that's coming out in in September. So you, you you are forced. This this pandemic has caused a lot of um, problems in terms of mobility. So yes, work in terms of writing and doing the the research that's here. But I suspect, and, and especially guys who are dependent on doing, you know, their side of wargaming comes out of their workers' um, battlefield tour guides or military historians teaching in classrooms. They're the ones who've suffered more than me. And I think that's, that's bad because what concerns me now is, you know, the battlefield to me is a source of information for my wargaming. If you if you just look at it from a selfish perspective, the Battle of Antietam is interesting to me because of my American Civil War battle battles here. But if I can't go there, what happens to it? If other people and nobody's getting money to go into it, and who's going to keep the restoration? Now I actually know that Antietam's going to be well looked after. I know Normandy's going to be well looked after, but I know other battlefield sites are less well looked after. And there's less interest then. And then gradually things start to decay. And, you know, there was a lad saying earlier today, I don't know if you saw it on Twitter, he, he, he'd always wanted to see the USS Texas, which is moored in, a, yeah. in an area just, at, I think, near Houston. And I saw it in the 90s, and it's, it's a fascinating ship. He went there hoping to get on board. He couldn't get on board. He couldn't see it because it was closed. And I think that that is going to be, that's the problem of the pandemic. It's exposed our ability to be more mobile and go around and do the stuff we want to do. Yes, we're okay, we're in our rooms, we're, we're working, we're seeing our way through the COVID, but it's actually preventing us from doing what we really need to do, which is to go on the battlefield. Absolutely, and you've only got to look, Phil, as I remember a lot of those early wargaming magazines gave you a tour of a battlefield and finished up with, go and walk it yourself. And I've always said there's there's nothing like understanding a battlefield through me as a tour guide. There's nothing like understanding a battlefield than walking the battlefield. 
I remember walking, um, I went to the crime here. It was a bucket list thing to do. I ended up going out there quite a few times to, to look at the crime here. And it was only a friend of mine, um, Ian Fletcher, who wrote a book called Clash of Empires about the Crimean War. It was him going to the Crimea, and I sat there with him at North Valley, looking over towards South Valley, and he said, I don't get this. I'm going to have to write a book about it. And we walked the charge route for North Valley, discussed it over a few beers, as you do. But it was him going to that battlefield that got him to write his book. It was us discussing what we'd just walked, how it must have been back in 1854 as well, that opened up all sorts of things for us. And it also made me look at that every book I'd read up to then on the Charge and Light Brigade, to me, had missed so much. And, and it, it was just beyond my comprehension. And as you say, and, and someone had actually, uh, I think it was Adkin, I remember a friend of mine having an heated discussion with him because Adkin had wrote uh, had, um, had written his book on the Charge of Light Brigade and then dropped him to someone he'd never even visited the site. Yeah? Uh, and you're thinking, really? How, how'd you get away with that one? Um, and I, it, I, it, remember, I remember a student, not a student, it was actually higher, it was a lecturer, who was talking about a battle and as he was talking, he was making these sweeping moves, right, as you do. Uh, and I said, you know, that Panzer Regiment that you're shifting like that has just done 1,500 kilometres. Did he do it in a day or did they do it in like a week or a month? And, and he said, you're kidding me. He didn't know. <laughs> and there's an awful lot to be said. And again, this but sort of, you know, uh, yeah, but to be just to be fair, Ben. Sorry to just finish. No, up. no, no. My 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 thing is there is I've seen this with a lot of academic scholars. They assume that military history is a whole load of tanks going down the road having a fight. There's drums and muskets in the background, and there's whistles and and banging, and then it all ends up with a band. That's not how it works with military history. Military history mostly is about understanding. If you're going to do the battles, you have to understand the terrain and the, and the sheer number of people who've never walked a battlefield who talk about battles is quite amazing. Yeah, it, 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 it's staggering. And, and of course, you, you know, I, I, I'm locked into a into a, a subject where um, mine battlefields are 900 miles away from where I am at the moment. So it's a bit of a ride. But once I get there, I'm on the Eastern Front. I know how vast they are because I'm in a forest, which is vast. And you see you see the scale of things. And once you've engaged with that scale, it pretty much changes the way you're looking at things. And it's the same. I had the same experience when I went to Gettysburg the first time. I thought Gettysburg was appalling because of all the monuments. I thought, my God, what have I walked into? Does that... that it's like every, every few yards is a monument to this regiment, that regiment, and every other regiment. And it just didn't, it, it wasn't how I imagined Gettysburg to be. And then a, a friend of mine, Ed Bears, said, let's walk uh, Pickett's Charge. So, you know, you think, oh, I know Pickett's Charge, it's a fairly long way, but, you know, not that far. Blimey, on the, on the when was it, the 3rd of July? Well, that's a very hot time in that time of year. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> by the time I got to the Emmitsburg Road, I was saying, wow, this is hot. And Ed Bears had been a Marine in the, in the Far East in the Second World War, turns around to me and says, this isn't hot. <laughs> <laughs> Just to make you feel worse than you feel actually yeah, are. Of course, of course. But the thing is, you'd had that experience. You'd you'd seen what it was like. You had a feel. You had a an awareness. And you don't then, when you come to write these things, you come to discuss these things, you don't sweep your arms all over the place that this infantry regiment's going up here, there, and everywhere else. You just know how things work, and and that improves your knowledge and then your ability to tell the story when you're talking to somebody. In fact, a perfect battlefield for that, and, and I've guided there, and it certainly blew me away from day one, is Gallipoli. 
Mm. You can't do anything at Gallipoli without going to Gallipoli and seeing Gallipoli. And it, it not only does it answer questions, but it asks more questions as well. And you sit there with no matter how many people, and you go, and they go, I can't believe. First off, it's this small. B, what were they thinking about? What did they expect to happen? And it's only by going to Gallipoli, walking the ground at Gallipoli, that you get that. You don't get it by looking at a map. You don't get it by reading it in a book. And, of course, when you've done that and you've walked that battlefield, like Gallipoli, like you did with uh, uh, Pickett's Charge. In fact, I did it at the Alma as well. And a mate of mine was sitting up, Ian Fletcher was sitting up at the Grand Redoubt. And I started off from the village uh, where the Brits uh, started off from. We did it on the 150th anniversary. And funny enough, I was wearing a 1966 reproduction England World Cup football shirt. <laughs> and, he, and, and we walked right the way from, uh, from the village where the Brits start, right the way across the Ulmer. And yet again, I was like, oh, someone's having a laugh here. No one's firing at me. And by the time we got to the top and there were two of us doing it, he said, that red shirt you're, you're wearing. I went, yeah. He said, I could pick you out about a mile away. About a mile away. You were a little red dot getting bigger and bigger and bigger on the landscape. Um, and you start thinking, yeah, you don't come across those experiences without visiting the battlefield and walking the ground. No. No, it, it adds an air of authenticity to whatever you're doing, to whatever you're writing. Um, whether whether it be sort of the rules for a, a war game, whether it be for a book, um, or a treatise, or you know, or or even to, to have a have a meaningful discussion um, with another. I can now see through the statues. I mean, there's thousands. Of, there's even more statues now since I since I first went there. There must be must be at least I would have thought at least a thousand. I'm sure some would say more. But the, I don't go there. I, the last time I went there, which was about five years ago, I don't go there for the the statues. I go to look at the ground and to remember what it was like to walk that um, yeah. charge. Because you know, for that changed me. That's what Ed Bears did. He said, "You're going to walk that that battle that charge," and that changed me because I'd experienced it. Not the actual battle, but yeah, I right. walked the ground and I saw what happened. And when I got to the very end, and we're just about to mount the area where the uh, the Union guns are, you're walking on heavy shale. And I was astonished, because I'd never read that you're walking on heavy shale. And if the Confederates don't have boots like they had, apparently no boots, um, they must have been cutting their feet on all that um, what do you call it? You know that horrible, horrible bush type stuff. Yeah. Of course, uh, just, yeah, you know, that's it. Yeah, it, 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 this is remarkable, and I think um, th th this has led the conversation rather nice, sort of finished nicely from how you, you th these are areas you would have never perhaps visited had you not gone into wargaming. Absolutely. And 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 I think it's a very good place at this point to to stop because it it makes the point beautifully. Uh, and and as you said, Phil, you you live the experience. You know about it. You've read about it. You're being guided about it. But you're actually physically there. And and to see it, like you say, if you, you know the shale, having run on shale or sand or you know walk, absolute agony. And then fighting it, and all all of everything else that's on top of that, it adds another element to the story, doesn't it? That is perhaps not always shared and given. Yeah. Chaps, thank you so much um, for for sharing your experiences. Um, I'm sure we'll be back. The triumvirate will be back. Um, we have something else to discuss. Um, and thank you so much for your time for sharing your, your experiences. Very, very kind of you. Appreciate it. It's very hot, very muggy, and we probably all want a nice cup of tea. Well, I certainly do. Um, so, listener, I really hope you enjoyed this um, 
this episode where we where we, we three of us have just well I have, I've sort of listened, but Gary and, and Phil have shared their experiences of wargaming. I really do um, hope that you're able to take something from this. Links will be posted in in the descriptor as always. Um, and before I sign off, just like to thank once again um, OC French Debt Gary from Calais and OC Wargaming Dr. Philip Bud for joining me today on Paint and Scale. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks for a nice evening. Au revoir. Take care, gentlemen, and listeners, do take care wherever you are. TTFN.